0: Well, good morning, it's good to see you all. It's good to see you a few. This is definitely a huge change from last Sunday. Uh, You can definitely feel how the semester unrolls and uh, I think it's clear we have lots of folks who must have been traveling for Thanksgiving with family. And so we'll look forward to having them back um, next Lord's Day, we hope, and I hope all have safe travel. But it's good to see all of you this morning. And it's always good to be in the Lord's house together. I'm going to be preaching at uh, Baxter Avenue uh, right after this uh, session for their anniversary. I think 170 years. So that's a pretty remarkable thing. So in any event, thrilled to be with you this morning. And we're going to be turning to the Gospel of Luke. And in particular, beginning in verse 9. And uh, we're going to have some fun with this. Uh, This parable, which is a, a bit familiar to us, I think. Most of us know this parable. The rhythm of it makes sense to us, we think. But I want us to look at it anew. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed, thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Father, we're just thankful you give us the opportunity to be together, to study your word. We pray that your word, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, will uh, live in us and dwell in us and produce godliness in us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, it's kind of interesting. If you were to think about telling a child a story, uh, it is interesting to look at the, uh, the form of the fairy tale or the form of the short children's story, a kinder story. And, uh, and, and by the way, there's enormous, enormous worldview and historical and literary importance in these stories. Uh, I'd love to take some time to think about them with you at, at some moment. Uh, there's far more embedded in them than you might think. The fairy tales themselves were often told within cultures to instruct children. They weren't just to entertain children. They entertained children in order to instruct them. And so, like Little Red Riding Hood, which uh, is a, a, a story I think known to just about everyone, comes with a very clear message to children about the danger of strangers and especially in medieval Germany, in the fringe of the Black Forest, uh, a place like Marburg, from which uh, the the brothers Grimm lived there. So many many dangers in that thick forest, and you didn't know who was coming out of it. And so, you know, you you had the, the Greek fables, such as Aesop's fables, and the fables all had a moral point. And the moral point may be very, very serious, like don't lie, or it, it, it may be industrious like uh, the, the tortoise and the hare. The parables of Jesus are not like those stories, but it's not because they're not constructed somewhat like them. It's just that Jesus' parables don't have a point, they don't have a moralism at the end. They are in the service to the gospel. And rather than kind of unfold, they explode. If we flatten them out like one of the fairy tales or one of the parables, then we're going to be in big trouble. We're going to domesticate the parable, and the parable does not want to be domesticated. And Jesus didn't get in trouble for telling domesticated stories. Jesus got in trouble for telling stories that made people think and then made people... Mad, at least some people. But the people to whom Jesus told this parable were mad already uh, at the the ministry of Jesus. They were very critical of the gospel ministry of Jesus. They didn't like the, the entire context. And so this particular passage in Luke tells us that he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now, was this the Pharisees? Uh, clearly, the character of the Pharisee in this parable plays this role. But It could be a Pharisee. It could be a Pharisaical attitude, but we're about to meet a Pharisee who represents that Pharisaical attitude in the most Pharisaical way, and so yeah, it, it's clear as the story unfolds that Jesus is condemning the Pharisees. But first, we need to know where this parable is different than any other parable of Jesus, at least in terms of uh, of setting. You know, if I begin talking to you and uh, I say I want to tell you a story, there once was a guy who lived in a place and you know he did this. There once was a, a princess in a castle and she did this. Well, you, you hear that and immediately it has the the feel of a, of a story, Beauty and the Beast, or Little Red Riding Hood. or something. Something's going to, to fall into place in a natural, kind of comfortable way. But if I say I want to tell you a story and it begins in the United States Capitol, well, that's different. That's a little closer to home because that's a specific place. You better be very careful whatever story you tell that begins at the United States Capitol or at the White House. Or... At Third Avenue Baptist Church. And, you know, if, if, if the parable begins, there once was this at, or this person at Third Avenue Baptist Church, well then you're thinking, well, that's a little on the nose. That, that's a little close. But Jesus begins this by talking about two men going up to the temple to pray. And in the context of Judaism in the first century, especially being in Jerusalem, to say this happened in the temple. Well, that's shocking and probably risky. This is a, a high-risk storytelling going on here, a high-risk parable because you invoke the temple. It's high risk for another reason, of course, because the temple is not just a familiar place and it's not just the most famous place in Israel. It's Israel to a degree unlike anything you or I know The temple is Judaism. Remember, the temple is where the sacrifices take place, and then the temple is the Holy of Holies, where God annually is present with his people. That's very different than the White House. That's very different than this building. When Jesus says two men went up to the temple to pray, Well, you know, right now in Jerusalem, this would be considered language that would incite a riot. This language, the language I just used, because there is no temple right now in Jerusalem. There is a Temple Mount. And on the Temple Mount is an Islamic mosque. And thus, if in Israel, in public discourse you speak about The temple. Well, you'll get riots on the street of Jerusalem. Well, our concern today is not riots on the street in Jerusalem. It's following this parable. Jesus began it immediately. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, that also raises some very interesting dimensions of life in israel that we might not think about you know when we're children we assume that what goes on in any other church is what goes on in our church until someone tells us no that they do they do things differently there they've got priests and they've got an altar and they've got a mass or they've got this or they've got that In a likewise fashion, when we think of the temple, we tend to kind of backwards read what we think of as, say, worship as going on in the temple. That is not what went on in the temple. The the preaching, the singing of hymns, that's characteristically Christian. That marks the experience of the church. The synagogue was a place where the scripture was taught. The synagogue, which literally in the language means the gather together place. That, that's where the congregation would be. And so, for instance, when you have Jesus in Galilee, he'll often speak in a synagogue. And a synagogue is, is a religious place, but it's not a religious place like the temple because sacrifices are not performed there. And so if you just think Catholic for a moment, And you think about a Catholic cathedral and you think about the fact that one of the reformers' central uh, condemnations of the mass is that it is the bloody repetition of the cross. In in other words, it's a a horrible reenactment of the cross and with transubstantiation, they claim that Jesus is crucified yet again. So then the sacrament of the mass, this literally is the crucified Christ's flesh and blood through transubstantiation. The the Roman Catholic cathedral, or the Roman Catholic chapel, for that matter, where there's a priestly mass, is an effort to slam together the synagogue and the church and the temple into one. That's why when you walk into a Catholic church, the first thing you see primary is the altar and the, the words off to the side. And if you've ever been to a Catholic mass, trust me, the words off to the side. Uh there's just practically no preaching or what they call a homily is often just absolutely devoid of scripture. The scripture's not central, but the point is it's all smashed together and uh in and, and in that sense, Catholicism represents a continuation of the sacrifice focus that was true in the temple in in Israel, but we're going backwards and we we don't do this. It's very difficult for us to understand that what would go on in the temple is that this, the, the menstruations of the priests, and remember, they are daily sacrifices. There are all kinds of sacrifices. That's why people are selling the turtle doves and they're, they're selling the other animals to be sacrificed out front. It's got all these regular sacrifices are taking place. The priests are doing what the priests do. Only on the Day of Atonement does the high priest go into the Holy of Holies. The rest of the time, what's going on is the offering of prayers as people come into what's called especially men would come into the court of Israel, which is inside the building, and, uh, or inside the parapet, the, uh, the, the inside the wall, so that they may pray. The court of the Gentiles is the outer court, and, uh, and those who are Gentiles could proceed no further. The court of Israel is where men of Israel could go in, and, and they would pray as the priests, as the priests are, are, uh, are doing their priesting, and as the sacrifices are being performed, and as all the other rituals of the temple are taking place, then men of Israel would stand and they would pray. And, uh, and, and it was a place of prayer. Jesus said, my father's house shall be a house of prayer. And, and so prayer was the right thing that was going on in there, as well as the sacrifices. The preaching, by the way, would take place if near the temple in the precincts of the temple. You see that passage also, that reference also in Scripture. And that would not be done as an official place where there would be pews and a pulpit. That would be where there would be an itinerant preacher who would be preaching, and a crowd might be gathered together. And that might include his disciples. So when Jesus preaches near the temple, there may be other preachers doing this. It's, uh, it, it's where that kind of proclamation took place, outside of the temple, and outside of a synagogue. But in the temple, these two men have gone to pray. And then immediately, it's, it's, we have the as they pray. So what happens as they pray? But before you get there, you're supposed to be really shocked, really, really shocked. The two men who went up into the temple to pray were a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now, we're 18 chapters into the Gospel of Luke, and so we're just going to assume that the, uh, the disciples of Jesus have been somewhat habituated and accustomed to Jesus' preaching. And they've been with Jesus when he's had confrontations with the Pharisees and others. But I want to suggest to you that I think even the disciples would be very shocked not by the presence of the Pharisee in the temple but of the tax collector in the, in, in, the, in the temple. The two men who went up to pray, one was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. Now, another problem we have as evangelicals is that like in uh, the Westerns, that's another very familiar form of uh, of narrative. By the way, in the history of film, as in movies, the, uh, the Western emerged rather early. It was an unexpected success. It was an unexpected success because, as it turns out, in the early age of film, people didn't have to have a lot of narrative. And by the way, of course, during the time of the silent movies, there wasn't much narrative other than what was you know put in by slides. But people could figure out how a Western worked. Good guys, bad guys. With the music and, and all the rest, you could figure out these are the good guys, these are the bad guys, and just keep the action going. I think one of the funniest dimensions of the history of film is how popular westerns were in places like France because it's all about the american west it's uh, it's cowboys and Indians, and uh, it's cowboys versus cowboys and these and and so it, and by the time the talkies came along then these these Westerns that were produced in France, also in Italy, uh, where they're also hilarious, by the way. But the the French and you, you've got this cowboy, and he comes into town and you know throws open the saloon doors and says "Moi," you know. It just it just doesn't work. Uh, it 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 doesn't work. But it worked. It definitely worked in France. They loved it. But the point is, good guy, bad guy, and typecast. One of the early problems is that unlike Uh, dramatic presentations, plays, where people were quickly accustomed to seeing actors and actresses playing various roles. Uh, The film allowed lots and lots and lots of Americans to see an actor or an actress in one role. And that's where typecasting became a huge problem. Typecasting was a massive problem because if you have this guy who's the hero in the Western, he cannot be the villain in the next one. The, the, The audience won't like it. And so the Hollywood formula was you have to have these cinematic figures and uh, they've got to keep playing the same kind of role because audiences will be very offended if the roles get switched. And, and look, that continued. like No one could really imagine casting John Wayne as the bad guy. For those of you of a certain age, you'll understand that just doesn't work. You look back at those movies and you say, that was not great cinema. No, but it was very indicative of the way cinema worked. You had to have a certain kind of character playing a certain kind of role. But typecasting can fool us, and, and that's the problem. And, and time casting can fool us here, because when we hear the name Pharisee, we hear the word Pharisee, our typecasting instinct is to say, this is going to be the bad guy. But you need to understand that in first century Israel, the assumption was the opposite. The assumption was the opposite. If holiness and devotion are what God demands, then the Pharisees are actually the good guys at this. The rest of us are rank amateurs. Now, that isn't to say they were always admired personally. But you'll notice that Even in the New Testament, the Pharisees are not generally condemned for what they do, but for what they say and how they act in the hardness of their hearts. Even the Pharisee we're encountering here today, he will say, you know, I tithe, I tithe, I do all this. Nowhere is it said that that's wrong, don't do that. It's the attitude, it's the heart. What should absolutely shock us is the tax collector in the temple. Because that's not just a weird narrative angle. That's wrong. It's just wrong. And you say, well, haven't you read the parable of Jesus? How can you say it's wrong? Oh, I know Jesus is going to say it's right, but at this point, we're supposed to think it's wrong. Why would it be wrong? Well, it's because he is a man actively involved in sin. He is, by his job, breaking several of the commands of the law, and in particular, the commands of Israel, the law of Israel. He's having, he he is basically an agent for the imperial, Roman, pagan, idolatrous empire, robbing his own people of money. And that's officially the way they did it. And if you think that's strange, that also continued into American history, uh, where, for instance, in frontier territory, people would sometimes be uh, paid to do things for the government, and you just pretty much demanded from whomever you were doing this what you were going to be paid until all this is standardized. The point is the Pharisee is the good guy and the tax collector is the bad guy. The Pharisee, by all externals, deserved to be in the temple to pray. The tax collector, by all externals, had no right to be there at all. And immediately they began to pray. And the Pharisee is going to pray first. No surprise there. Nothing in this short parable is extra. Everything is essential. Every single word matters, including how verse 11 begins. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. Okay, so standing by himself, prayed thus. Is that normal or abnormal? And here again, we've got to work a little. The people who heard Jesus tell this parable the first time didn't have to work at this because it was the experience. is right there. For us, it's not right there. What about standing to pray, right or wrong? Well, let's put it this way. There are no seats. It's another thing. When I take people to European cathedrals, and uh, you're, you're one of the great cathedrals, no matter where it may be. It could be in France or Germany or more likely in England. You go to Westminster Abbey or you go to St. Paul's Cathedral. St. Paul's Cathedral and Westminster Abbey now have seats, modern invention. Never would have been there in the beginning. The cathedrals didn't have chairs. Well, there was a chair for the, the bishop, the throne, on the, up near the altar. But the people didn't sit in chairs. They, they stood they they congregated inside the room. Chairs, by the way, would have limited attendance. you got to you cram people in, kind of like you're cramming into an airport terminal. You just get as many people in as you can. People are standing. There's nothing strange about the Pharisee standing except the fact that he believes he belongs there. And confidently he stands and prays. But notice how he prays. We have the exact words. We have a transcript. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Okay, now I know you don't like him. You don't like him. I don't like him either. We're not supposed to like him. But we better take his prayer seriously. He means it to be taken seriously. He, he stands and prays thus, Lord, I thank you that I am not like other men. And then just in case God didn't know the other men he's thinking of, he mentions extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, I just don't want you to nod head. Don't, 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 don't give any indication here. But haven't you sometimes prayed a prayer like this? I mean, maybe not in the temple standing, praying, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, but I'm just going to go out on a limb here and believe that there have been moments in which you've been quite satisfied to be you as compared with someone else. And I just want to tell you, that's not an abnormal human experience. It's not an abnormal Christian experience. I mean... People do awful stuff. People make a mess of their lives. People keep going back to the same sin. And, and I'm not just about people in the church, but people in the world. just I mean, the world's the world. It does worldly stuff. And then I, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and believe that at least there could have been one millisecond in which you had thought, I'm thankful God, that I'm not like that person. Well, I mean, in in the sense that we pray that, knowing that it's the grace and mercy of God that has prevented us, at least thus far, from being that person, it's a normal human instinct. And it comes perhaps to those who feel themselves morally superior. Now, this leads to what historians talk about is the Victorian quandary. And I'm going to be honest because most preachers won't be honest about this. I'm going to try to be honest. The Victorian quandary comes down to the Victorian moral code in 19th century Britain. Okay? Was it good or bad, this Victorian code? That had everything to do with, you know, even rules for modesty and etiquette and rules for this and rules for that. Well, I'm going to be honest. I'd rather live next door to people who make their kids behave. I'm going to be honest. I'd, I'd prefer that. I would prefer that a lot. I, I would prefer not to have my yard vandalized. I, I would prefer that. I would prefer social sanction to be pretty high such that if someone comes and messes up my yard, the neighbors don't applaud I I I would rather live in a place where the bankers are held to rules. I think that's a good idea. Uh, So, in other words, we don't hold to some kind of moral relativism that just says, well, you know, all morality is relative. And by the way, when people say that, they generally don't mean to be talking to their accountant. They want to talk to their sex therapist that way. They do not want to talk to their accountant that way. But you know, one of the Victorian problems and the Victorian quandary was if you identify vice, you incentivize hypocrisy. And this is also led, of course, to the witty response that hypocrisy is the tip of the hat. Uh, you know, of of good behavior to, uh, to vice. It's the price you have for identifying right and wrong. You have people who have to live as if they are more upright than they otherwise would be. And by the way, again, this is the Victorian quandary. Is that right or wrong? Well, you say that might not be the best thing, but if you're living in a neighborhood, it's not the worst thing. Sort of like parenting. At a certain age, you have children and you... You make them obey, and you know the husband and the wife, the mother and the father get together, and you know the one of them says, "Well, I'm just I'm not really concerned. Obedience is in her heart," and the other one says, "Well, you know what? Right now, she's obeying. So whether she's doing it out of the greatness of her heart and the purest of her motives, or whether she just fears, you know, the consequences of disobedience. Right now, I don't care. She's obeying. Let's go with that. Okay." All that to say that the Pharisee's not speaking gibberish here. He's saying what most of us would probably also think, right? Let's just be honest. If we're in the presence of people and there's an adulterer, an an extortioner, and a tax collector, I just want to be honest and say I think most of us would at least fall prey somewhat to saying, I'm glad I'm not one of those. And you don't want to be one of those. You don't want to be an extortionist. You don't want to be an adulterer. You don't want to be a tax collector in this sense of grand larceny and complicity with idolatry. No, you don't want that. Pharisees make much better neighbors. Prayers are a little loud sometimes, but nonetheless, you know, the the bills are all paid, the grass is cut, the kids are well-behaved. No one's extorting here. So you just look at that and you go, okay, but what's betrayed here is the fact that in a context of standing in the temple, in the temple, which is all about the infinite majesty of God, this man's prayer is not about his own sin, but his own moral superiority. That's the problem. That's the problem. I talked to someone the other day who had been involved in criminal law for a very, very long time. And he just said to me, he said, the hardest thing you have to fight is just cynicism. So says, You can be around people long enough in a criminal court situation in which you just decide, I'm never going to believe another human being for the rest of my life. I have been confronted with so much dishonesty. I'm confronted with so much criminality. I just give up believing that there's any goodness in the world. Now, the man said this to me in self-reflection. In other words, making clear that's not the position he adopts. But he says, that's the temptation that's there. You can look uh, out among human beings, and you can find ample reason to be cynical and to feel yourself morally superior. You could go down to the courthouse, and my guess is you could feel much superior. You can open the scandal pages of the newspaper and feel far superior. But to stand in the temple and feel superior? This is one of the issues that came to light in the Reformation of the 16th century. Martin Luther said, "What what are the problems with the Catholic Worship is that you say you feel like a sinner, but you don't really feel like one. There's 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 not the preaching against sin that's directed at the heart. It's all directed at externals. To stand in the temple and 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 to pray, I'm thank God that I'm not like other men, is to miss the point entirely. Because if we are in the temple, if we are confronted with the Holy One of Israel, the God who is holy, 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 then our infinite response should be the comparison between His infinite righteousness and our unlimited, though not infinite, evil. We're actually not capable of infinite action. But every finite part of us is part of a vast human conspiracy to sin against God. The chasm that is between us is infinite because of the infinity of His righteousness, His excellence, His holiness. <coughs> Thus, there is this infinite gap between us. The Pharisee sees no gap. I mean, he just assumes He is right standing, He has every reason to be there, and this is how He prays. And by the way, it's not just comparison, it's also resume. Um, I, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm looking here, I could see very few opportunities for a happy response to my question. You are too young. If you had all the boys and UofL students back in, I wouldn't even do this. But is there anyone in this room who remembers the 10 or 12-point weekly offering boxes? Lindy. Not even my own sweet wife who grew up Yankee fundamentalism. (laughs) The Southern Baptist Convention had offering envelopes, and evidently two of us in this room Every Sunday we took our offering envelope and there were, depending upon which one you had, 10 or 12 boxes. And I still have a couple of them in my little like first grade hand. And I wrote my name and you checked off present. Now you would think just turning it in would imply that, but nonetheless, you got to check off. If you didn't get to check off anything else, you could check off present. And then Bible brought check off a second one. And then lesson read, because we had Sunday school quarterlies and you you were supposed to read them before you got there. You check off if you read the lesson. You check that off. Offering brought. And it was an envelope. So you could put the offering in the envelope. And then uh, uh, contact. <coughs> Did you invite someone to come? Are you staying for worship? And, and so, you know, big church, we called it when we were kids. And so you checked everything off. And... Uh, you know that was kind. That was a public act. I mean, you're standing there, a bunch of you know, a bunch of seven-year-olds filling out your forms, and you brought it and you put it in. It was a little Pharisaical. And you're checking everything off. Pharisees checking everything off. Now, were all those things right to do? Yes, yes. But there's no bragging about doing it. He tithes all that he has. And you'll, you'll notice how he puts it. He just, he, just in case God misses this. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Not, he's not even commanded to tithe everything. But he does. It's a short prayer. And what you're to note is that it's entirely horizontal. But then in verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, A sinner. So the text collector is far off, which means that the, the contrast is between the, the Pharisee who evidently stood right in the middle of the crowd of the court of Israel and proclaimed these things to God. And you've seen probably art depicting what we believe is the posture of the men of Israel in prayer. That will be arms up. And you see this referenced in the Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament so there's there's good reason to believe that it was done with 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 arms up. Uh, but this is a man who stands as if he wants to be invisible. He stands away from the crowd far off, and he will not even lift his eyes to heaven. so not only will he not lift up his face and his his hands he he won't lift up his head at all, he knows who he is. He walks in the temple, what he sees is his sin and that's all he knows to to talk about. He beats his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. What he calls for is not God's applause or God's congratulations or even God's satisfaction. He knows there is nothing in him that would commend God's satisfaction. All All he can do is throw himself on the mercy of God. God be merciful on me, a sinner. The first man prayed and had a resume. He had his envelope with all the boxes checked off. This uh, this man will not even lift his eyes to heaven. He just beats his breast saying, God be merciful on me, a sinner. Now let me just ask you: is there anything wrong with that prayer? From a Christian perspective, is there Is there anything wrong? Is there a single syllable in that prayer that isn't right? I I don't think I can find anything wrong with it at all. I I don't think I can find, and I'll say this, as a theologian, I just don't think I can find any theological problem with this prayer. Nor evidently can Jesus. Jesus. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's that's all he knows. He's not presuming upon it. Just have mercy on me. He's begging for it. Jesus tells us, and here's the astounding explosion in this parable. In verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's technically what is known here as 14a. That is the first clause of verse 14 that is the explosion. I tell you, and when Jesus says, I tell you, it's, of course, an emphatic. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Now, in the time we have left, just consider there, there are only three phrases here. I tell you, this man went home justified rather than the other. So, little a, I tell you. Little b, this man went home justified. Little c, rather than the other. Okay, just think of that structure. Jesus says, I tell you. Okay, Jesus is going to tell us. So we're ready. We got that. We understand that much. He's about to tell us what we don't see. If, if we saw it, he wouldn't need to tell us, but we wouldn't see what he's going to tell us. And the I tell you indicates, well, this is actually tantamount in the gospel of Luke to what you would find virtually in the gospel of John in the ego eimi statements where Jesus says, I am, I am, I am, discloses his deity. Jesus says, I tell you. It's an amazing statement. They came made only by the Son of God. He's going to tell us what God sees. So that's A. Then little B, this man went home justified. The, The tax collector, that man went home justified. Well, if I were not talking to you this morning in this church, I'd be deadly afraid of using a word like justified without spending about 30 minutes defining it. This means declared just before an infinitely righteous God. Justified. Not looking just, not being called just, but justified. That's the most amazing thing. Justification by faith alone. We don't look justified, we're not just declared to be justified, although that's true. It is is a justification that is real. It is being realized in us, but before the throne of God, it is real. We are justified by faith. We're declared righteous, and there's no righteousness in us, so it has to be the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the righteousness of Christ imputed to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. This man went home justified. Now there's the gospel. There's the power of the gospel that a tax collector can be justified, can go home justified, not just with the hope of justification, but justified. And it's all traceable back to the mercy of God, which is all he knew to pray for about himself and all he knew to describe a sinner. Little A, I tell you, little B, this man went home justified. Little C, rather than the other. Boom. You don't look as shocked as you should be. Because even... Even if little C said, just like the other, it would be a remarkable story. It'd be a remarkable display of grace and gospel. But it's not just like the other, it's rather than the other. So it turns out that this parable not only gives us a positive picture of justification accomplished, it also gives us a picture of justification denied flat denied, absolutely denied. The man went home unjustified. And that doesn't just mean like it was a bad day at the temple. It means he's lost. If you work backwards, it's the sea that's the most explosive part of the parable and must have been, when you consider how the passage begins, where Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And Jesus doesn't tell them that they are demonstrating inadequate righteousness. He tells them there is no righteousness in them at all. They're lost. Rather than the other. But there's the promise of the gospel that to all who call upon the name of the Lord, salvation shall come. The prayer that God does answer, not because He's externally bound to answer, but because He Himself internally promises to answer, is, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That prayer offered in the name of Christ, sincere from the heart, is always honored because God is always faithful to Himself. And the Father is always faithful to keep the promise He made to the Son. And thus we're saved. So little A, I say unto you, little B, this man went home justified, little C rather than the other. We're warned by C and informed by A and we live for eternity in B because we want this to be who we are by the grace and mercy and to the glory of God, going home justified. So, it's been a privilege to look at this passage, this parable with you this morning. Uh, I hope you feel upset by it because Jesus told the parable to upset people. I hope you feel comforted by it in the gospel because Jesus also wants to comfort and instruct his flock And uh, I hope you are amazed by the passage, as I admit, I am continually amazed by every word of Scripture, but amazed in this context by this passage because it's infinitely more radical than most people would imagine. And I'm sure that we have scratched just the surface of it. Let's pray. Our Father, we're just so thankful that you give us the opportunity to open your word. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit will apply this word to our hearts. Conform us to the image of Christ, we pray, and ready us for the worship which is now to take place. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. God bless you all.